You're listening to the Quince podcast. In a democracy, the public institutions are often the ones that keep the government in check. But if the public institutions themselves are going through a crisis of credibility or are crumbling, then what happens to the democracy? That is the question and also the argument that a former CAG Vinod Rai is making in his latest book uh, called Rethinking Good Governance, Holding India's Public Institutions uh, to Account. I have with me uh, Mr. Vinod Rai here and we are going to be asking some questions uh, about exactly these public institutions. So in the book, in the beginning of the chapter on the CAG, you begin with a quote by Dr. former Prime Minister Dr. Manmohan Singh, where he said, never in the past has the CAG decided to comment on a policy issue. It should limit to the office of the role defined by the constitution. So then my question is that, what do you think is the mandate of the CAG? And because this comment came at a time when the Congress government was critical of the CAG's role, did you think that you exceeded that mandate? very clear that at no point of time has the CAG or the institution of the CAG ever exceeded the mandate that has been given to us. Uh, the mandate of the CAG is very clear. Policy formulation is done by the government of the day. The CAG has no role in policy formulation. But once that policy has been formulated and government fu starts functioning, whether it incurs expenditure or it rolls out projects and schemes, it's the CAG's mandate to check or to audit whether that policy formulation has been fully uh, <clears throat> uh, followed or not. Now, in the, in the case of uh, the, this remark probably came in the case uh, of our audit of the 2G spectrum allocation, where it was seen as if we were co commenting on the policy of first come first served which was adopted by the government while allocating the licenses in 2008. Now if you read our audit report, on the first page itself of the audit report it is very clearly stated that policy formulation is the sole prerogative of government. Audit's job is to conduct audit as per that policy which has been formulated. So, the pol when we did the audit of 2G, we looked at the allocation of licenses as per the first come, first served policy. But in the very next year, government had changed its policy when they allocated the 3G licenses. Right. At that time, it was an uh, auction. So, we did the audit again and that was as per the auction parameter. So, I had at that point of time, written a letter to the Honorable Prime Minister explaining to him that we had not exceeded the mandate as prescribed to us under the constitution or the statute and or performance audit, which is obviously a more modern day audit, was as per the um, audit parameters given to us by a government notification itself of 2006. You also write in the book, because we are talking about the mandate of the CAG, you also write in the book that there might be a perception that the CAG works contrarian to the government, but that is not the case. So how do you see the CAG's changing role now when we are talking about uh, the current government? You see, uh, the CAG does audit. Yeah. By definition, audit 
questions in some ways the performance of the executive. Right. So, to that extent, it is the perception is that it is a contrarian. Mm -hmm. And I'm, when I talk about uh, audit, I am not refer, uh, confining audit to the CAG's audit itself, audit worldwide, even in corporate. Uh, audit is seen as somebody who is questioning every action. So, to that extent, uh, <clears throat> it, it is uh, contrarian by definition, yet it is not in any way disruptive. And that is why I have written in the book and I see, I am convinced about it, that there is no we and they relationships. Mm. Audit is as much on the side of the executive or the government or in the corporate setup, the uh, implementing agencies yeah. as any other uh, body. Mm. The job of audit is to upgrade the quality of governance right. and hence the audit points out maybe inadequacies maybe suggests some remedies also. Right. Um, sorry, you are saying then the job of the audit then is to, can be, can work with the government as well. Then the, the auditor can work 100%. with the government. I think when the audit and the government work together, it upgrades the quality of government, it improves delivery, right. it stops leakages and to that extent it improves the efficiency of government functioning. Right. Coming back then to uh, the CAG report on uh, 2D spectrum allocation, one figure that almost everybody remembers from the report, even <laughs> even people who might uh, were or were not of uh, were not too old at that time, is of course one lakh seventy six thousand crores. The figure made uh, newspaper headlines. Everybody was stunned by it. Of course, you clarified at that time that this is a figure of notional loss to uh, the exchequer. Uh, do you stand by that number in 2019 and do you stand by the CAG report? Uh, I stand by that number 100%. If we were to conduct that audit all over again, I am sure my colleagues in the audit department would do exactly what they had done at that time. And we had used the word presumptive loss at that time. Why? Because presumptive in audit parlance is an international definition starting from the World Bank to lots of other audit uh, <coughs> uh, jurisdictions. Right. That is the word used and um, we totally stand by it. We gave four formulations of the so-called presumptive loss. 176 was the largest figure. So, folks like you from the media picked up that figure because it caught headlines. Right. Uh when you look at the impact then of the report, because the court is also another institution, the Supreme Court is also another institution that you do talk about uh, in the book. Uh, but what we saw was then that there were acquittals that happened in the 2G report. So, coming as someone who issued that report and coming as someone from the position of the CAG, what is your viewpoint or comment on acquittals? Were you expecting more from the courts or were you th did you think that the report would stand trial in the courts? Uh, let me explain this yeah. and put it in perspective. You see, it is like this. The CAG does audit. Audit is not an investigation. Okay? Audit just looks at the records. There are certain guidelines. Right. Looks at the facts, figures, policy uh, uh, implementation and then comes up with an audit report which is presented to parliament. Now, then a PIL was filed which in the Supreme Court. Supreme Court then examined uh, the contents of the PIL in terms of irregularities which had mm. been uh, conducted and found that there was irregularities in the implementation of that policy. So, Supreme Court in its wisdom 
cancelled the license. But the Supreme Court has made an observation and it has clearly said that we are not referring to or relying upon the audit report of the CAG because that report is before the PAC. So, Supreme Court was guided entirely by the evidence or the documentary material which was brought before it in the court itself. Okay. Now, Supreme Court in its wisdom cancelled the licenses. Now, third was an investigation done by our pre premier investigation agency which is the CBI yeah. and based on whatever evidence, documents, uh, witnesses, etc. they had, they went before the trial court. Mm. Okay. Now, that is an, the third yeah. uh, uh, aspect of it which has nothing to do with the audit or the irregularities. Now, in the judgment of that trial judge, he has very clearly said that the charge sheet made certain allegations, but there was not enough evidence brought forth by the investigating agency which could justify those hmm. charge sheet um, uh, um, allegations. So, where the acquittal took place was in the context of um, criminal right. uh, uh, in, in content hmm. or criminal intent or criminality of the uh, licensing procedure and that had nothing to do with either the audit report or with the Supreme Court observations. It had to do entirely with the evidence which the investigating agency had brought before it right. and that is why the judge has said that the evidence was not provided. So, then in this context considering the experience that you have had with this case, do you think that there is a possibility or that there is merit in the idea of expanding then the scope of the CAG from a simple audit body as you so clearly mentioned to maybe having uh, investigative powers where they are bringing forth regularities but just a little bit more than an audit body? You know, there are certain <coughs> uh, models of governance right. uh, of the CAG's establishment uh, worldwide where there is a certain amount of investigative powers given to the CAG also, but our mandate, our constitution does not give that and I would sincerely believe that audit and investigation should be kept separate so that there is an independent evaluation of whatever is the issue. Right. Uh, we then move on of course to your other big role as the chairman of the committee of administrators. When I was reading the book, I thought it was pretty interesting that in 2017, you got the news while you were at the airport and your first reaction to that was, oh it feels like I am the night watchman. But the night watchman has been batting for a very long time now. So, with the impending or the forthcoming BCCI elections, my first question to you then is, do you look forward to the night watchman retiring? Oh, 100 percent because when I called it a night watchman role at that point of time, um, I saw myself and my colleagues, you know, trying to get the BCCI to accept the constitution as handed out by the court, conduct the elections and we would have quit. It would have taken us eight months, nine months at the most, not more than that. But unfortunately, there have been lots of state associations and persons who were manning those associations who did not see eye to eye with the Supreme Court judgment and they have challenged that judgment. So, the committee of administrators had no role to perform in that because only recently the court had said that there were 92 if I remember correct interlocutory uh, petitions applications which were pending before the court and they had all to be disposed of before we could order the election. Now, that took a huge amount of time took more than two years. So, it was only on the 
uh, 9th of August of this year that the Supreme Court has accepted the final uh, constitution and given its verdict. We registered that constitution on the 16th of uh, August and sometime in September, if I remember right, we have announced that uh, the elections. You write quite extensively in the book about, like you were mentioning, the resistance that you faced in the implementation of the Justice Lodha recommendations. Uh, so, looking at your tenure as the chairman of COA, would you see it as a learning experience or as a challenge? Um, both. Yeah. Very much both. Big learning experience because from the point of view of the fact that people who had been in the business of administering cricket in the country, either in the state associations or the BCI itself, despite having been in that role for 10 years, 15 years or maybe more, were not willing to leave. Normal corporate governance dictates that after 9 years or 10 years, you need to have a changeover. That's good corporate governance. But these people felt that uh, they were the only persons who could administer cricket and they had the kind of experience which was best to administer cricket. Now, obviously, the Supreme Court disagreed with them. So, uh, that was the interesting part of it. The challenge part of it was to convince the state associations that here is an order of the Supreme Court. We really have no option now. And in the interest of administration of cricket, passing into the hands of younger people, mm. newer people, new blood, fresh blood and fresh thinking right. and that they should hand over the mantle to somebody else, move on. They could continue to be mentors, patrons, etc. But the administration should not be done by new right. generation of people. In your tenure as the chairman of COA, there were a lot of decisions and controversies uh, that you had. Uh, to take a look at or that you had to make a decision of. Is there one particular incident that you felt could have been dealt with differently? And I'm asking this because I got a sense from the chapter when you're talking about, say, for instance, the Hardik Pandya incident on coffee with Karan, as well as uh, the local, uh, as well as the other decisions that you made while you were the chairman. So do you think there is one incident that you felt you could have dealt with differently? See, one uh, problem that we faced was uh, the committee of administrators, as appointed initially, had a four-member committee. Right. Uh, for whatever reasons, two of the members had to quit. So it was left, the COA was left with only two members. Yeah. Now, in any walk of life, in administration, in parliament, yeah. when two judges sit, quite often we've had divided judgments. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, this was one case where perspective as seen by my colleague and me were different. Yeah. They were divergent. So that now... Having divergent views is absolutely no problem. But unfortunately, those divergent views played out into public domain. Right. That's where, as you said, the controversy was created. But in handling the issues, I don't think we would have done anything differently because over these last two and a half years, Indian cricket has performed exceedingly well. Right. Okay, uh, We've had a couple of glitches. Everybody will point out that we lost mm -hmm. the semi-final in the World Cup. Yeah. But, you know, any one day could be a bad day for uh, any player on in of any game right. okay but i think in in the larger uh, interest of the game it is performed right just one light question before we move on to maybe the next fairly serious ones is i was a little uh, interested in saying in a cricket crazy country to be in charge of cricket administration were you also uh, personally interested in cricket? Did you also play cricket uh, in your young age or did you also have a personal interest in it apart of course from being Yeah, I have had uh, very 
um, deep interest in cricket. I played it up to my university days. Uh, after that, I have been a cricket, um, close cricket follower. So, I mean, I have been following cricket. So, for me to get into the groove yeah. of administration was very easy because I knew everything about cricket that was available in the public domain. Right. So, is this your way of saying that uh, cricket administrators need to have some experience of cricket? Uh, I mean, yes. In the sense, in the country of um, 130 crores, I can assure you that 100 or 110 crore right. people would have some idea right. about cricket. Right. And that's why in the book, I've called uh, cricket in India not only to be a passion, it's a kind of a religion, you know. Right. And so everybody has that kind of knowledge uh, overview of cricket. But the administration, well, very frankly, administration of cricket or administration of temple or administration of any hmm. um, corporation, yeah. not very different. The principles. the principles are more or less the same. Let's move on to the RBI, which I thought was quite an interesting chapter to read. And I'll quote something that you wrote. You argue that the quick turnover of RBI governors from Raghuram Rajan to Urjit Patel is not going to be beneficial to the government. I mean, while I was reading this, I kept in mind the fact that uh, the RBI has also transferred 1.76 lakh crore surplus reserves to the government. So my first question is, what do you think of this move? Do you think that there is then a danger of the RBI becoming subservient to the executive? Uh, subservient to the executive and what? See, it's like... Because this. that is one of the phrases that you do use in the chapters where you say that uh, we, that is a complex dynamic that the yeah, RBI yeah. and it's, the government it's a very have complex to, dynamic. Have so to sort of negotiate. Absolutely correct. Yeah. It's very complex. See, the RBI's mandate is looking after monetary policy. They are concerned about the level of inflation in the mm. country and they try to always try and manage that inflation. Uh, the government is looking after the, is the fiscal authority looks after taxation and fiscal policy, etc. Government is always interested in growth, economic growth. Okay. Right. So now there is always, and I've talked of instances from 1953 when RBI governors, many of them have resigned because of differences. Hmm. So there is a healthy kind of tension between the government and the RBI always. Right. I think it's, I, I call it healthy because it should be there also. There should be this, uh, you know, debate, discussion over these things. But the people with good acumen, the people with capability have always lived with these differences and taken the middle of the path or agreed path between the two agencies and pushed forward. Normally, uh, what happens is, well, one governor did only one term, he had to go back, the other governor resigned midway. Hmm. Now, there could have been any number of issues on which he resigned. Right. So, it's quite unfair to say that the government prevailed upon him or anything. Hmm. All that I have uh, said in the book is that uh, the central bank worldwide has had differences with the government of the day. Yeah. But it is very uh, dependent upon the incumbent on both the sides, hmm. whether it may be the finance minister on one side or the governor on the other side to meet regularly, to kind of uh, dovetail their, uh, their uh, uh, policy appreciations right. and then take decisions in a cohesive fashion. Uh, so moving on to CBI, uh, in the book you call the CBI handmaiden of the government in power and then before you go on to of course describe the Rakesh Verma, uh, sorry the Rakesh Asthana and the Alok Verma controversy in the CBI and you say that it was a nadir in the reputation of the CBI quoting of course the Supreme Court. Now those are pretty strong words so my question to you then is why do you think that CBI is in a credibility crisis 
And do you think that it is because of maybe structural flaws in the organization, how the organization is structured or is dependent on political interference by the government of the day? See, allegations of political interference in the CBI have been there for the last about four decades that I have been right. in bureaucracy. There have also been strictures passed by courts and things on the quality of investigation done by the CBI and I am talking right from the uh, beef tallow and the, the Jain Shudvanathpati case with the Vineet Narayan case that I am talking about, the Beaufort's issues and a large number of such issues. And uh, the, the, I talked the Nadir was when the Chief Justice called the CBI a caged parrot. Mm. That was the credibility crisis that I am talking about and the credibility crisis when, uh, came about when the apex court of the country is finding flaws in the functioning of the CBI. Yeah. So that is the issue of the personnel or mm. people involved in it. Structurally, yes, there is a deficiency in the CBI and this has been po pointed out by very many administrative reforms commissions also that the CBI after the Vinit Narayan case has been put under the supervision of the CBC. But by itself, it draws its powers only from the Delhi Special Police Act. It does not have a statute of its own. Yeah. So even in the Vinit Narayan case, while the court said that it should be supervised by the CBC, the court said but its accountability would be to government. Mm -hmm. So CBI unfortunately is like a charioteer who has got, you know, one leg in, on one horse and one, the other leg on the other horse. That is what I call a structural um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, inefficiency or structural inadequacy in the system. And there have been large number of other recommendations of which says that the CBI must have a statute of its own. CBI must have a statute of its own. That in fact is a good intro, uh, segue to the, my next question which is that the general perception about public institutions in India is that the integrity is slowly getting compromised and that is in fact one of the, like the general perception if I speak to someone is they'll think oh but slowly and slowly the integrity is getting compromised for whatever reasons whether it will be structural flaws or the government. Do you agree with that diagnosis and if you do then where do you think is the cure? No, I'm, I'm not willing to admit that uh, integrity is being right. compromised. You see, any, no, any public institution right. draws, public institution is a structure. The people who man the structure are the ones who give it the name, its uh, uh, reputation and its efficiency. Now, people say, you would also say that there has been a general, general degeneration mm -hmm. in the levels of integrity yeah. or in the levels of public perception or in the levels of efficiency or competitiveness or competence of the institutions or the mm -hmm. people. Now, CBI or any such agency also has the same uh, issues regarding degeneration maybe. Uh, people say that quality of debate in the parliament mm. has degenerated. So I don't think the CBI can in any way be distanced from the rest of what is happening in the country. Right. So obviously the CBI, if people say that well, it is uh, equality has um, uh, drawn down or not only the CBI, any institution right. such. These institutions draw, draw the personnel of the people from society. So if society is in any way seen to be 
degenerating in some ways, well, these institutions also will. But apart from the people, when you make a good point that the, society, that the institutions draw its strength from the people who are then become a part of these institutions, but when we're looking at, so say for instance, the CAG, the CBI, the BCCI, all of these institutions that you do talk about your book, do you think there is or there needs to be maybe a legal framework to check or to protect the independence of these public institutions. Yes, in, in fact, that's that's one of the issues that I've argued in the case of the CBC and the CBI, that there is a very good legal framework which applies to, say, the Election Commission of India, to the CAG or the UPSC. The, these bodies take birth from the Constitution. Now, it's very essential for distancing the CBI and the CBC also from government to provide them an independent structure where they are professionally handled in every respect so that this allegation which keeps you know raising its head every now and then that's a handmaiden of government or the, it's a caged parrot of the government or it performs only the way the government wants it to perform or as um, is being said now you know vindictive because the government wants it to be yeah. vindictive all that will clear out if it has a mandate of its own. Just one public institution that I wanted to sort of talk to you a little bit about is of course the Election Commission of India. When we talk about a deficit of public trust, there may not be any other public institution that has faced that deficit so severely, particularly after the uh, 2019 general elections, where questions were raised again and again about EVMs, about EVM tampering, about in fact even going so far about the integrity of uh, the Election Commission of India and how elections are held. How do you view that? Uh, I must say that uh, <clears throat> the Election Commission of India has withheld, withstood scrutiny on all its actions and worldwide the kind of uh, reputation it enjoys is absolutely amazing. It's absolutely impeccable. Now, look, look, let us take the example of the EVMs. No political party which ever won an election, let alone won it by a landside you know, majority, has ever questioned the EVMs. It's only the loser who questions it, right. isn't it? So, What's it a case of? Typical case of the workman blaming his tools. Right. And it's only a bad man, uh, workman who blames his tools. Right. So, if I won in a landslide majority, very nice. It was a very credible election. But if I lose, the EVM is at fault or it has been rigged. Now, very fortunately for us, this time, I think 5% of the votes were all, uh, uh, by, you know, compared with VVPAT. And I've mentioned in the book, not a single divergence has been seen, which means the EVM has vindicated itself. Number two, about you're talking about the credibility or integrity of the election commission itself. See, it's a fact of life that where you have three people, there is bound to be some difference of opinion. Mm. And to the extent that those differences are discussed, debated and kept within the institution, I think it's a very healthy trend. There is absolutely no need for those discussions to be brought out into public domain. Right. And everybody, as far as the election commission is concerned, looks at a decision, a discussion, or a person in the commission from his political standpoint. And I think hmm. there has been no problem in the recent past where any action of the election commission could be questioned either in a public forum or in a judicial forum and has been faulted. 
So to that extent I think it is a very credible organization which has over time withstood all scrutiny. But in terms of elections in India have been happening over so many years and there have always been losers. But what we are seeing particularly during what we saw during the 2019 general election is an idea is a public perception that there is something that the election commission is a questioning of the election commission of India that we haven't seen earlier. For instance, people saying that EVM mein kuch hai. there are jokes about EVM tampering, the election commission is uh, actually this party's uh, agent or that party's agent. So that kind of rhetoric has, we have seen at least, has increased over the years. There have always been losers in India's elections. So why do you think that? Why do you think that has happened? What do you think is the reason for that? You're just subscribing to the viewpoint that I mentioned earlier, that the citizen today has much become much more aware. Right. You know, and he started questioning. I just said he's become discerning, he's become demanding. Hmm. So he started questioning every action. Now, maybe he's being misled. Maybe it's a genuine thing. But to the extent that these institutions, or especially the election commission has played itself out, I don't think there has been a single election which has ever uh, been faulted. And I think this is an institution which has a zero error right. tolerance. And I think it's a bit true to test. In your book, you talk about, of course, horizontal uh, public institutions as well as vertical public institutions, which basically means formal public institutions like we have the, CB, uh, the CVC, the CBI, the Election Commission of India, for instance, and of course, the informal uh, public institutions, which means people, NGO, civil society groups, and so on and so forth. Do you think then that in the coming years, we will see a little bit more uh, importance or a little bit more stress being given to these informal groups? Do you think they could be an alternative possibility? You know, I sincerely believe that's one of the most uh, encouraging and healthy developments which have taken place in the Indian society. Today, the citizen is more educated, more aware, more discerning and has become very demanding. He has begun to question every action of government. He has begun to hold any authority in power accountable for the decision that that authority takes. So to a very large extent, and I think uh, you folks, media, have been very responsible in, you know, all actions of government or all actions of any executive body being played out before the public. So that citizen who has become center stage has begun to question things. So whether it's a public interest litigation, whether it's an NGO, and I've talked about NGOs also, or citizens groups themselves, this is the vertical accountability factor which in India has become very active. And I think since public in a democracy is the ultimate stakeholder. It is this public which is holding the institution or the people who man those institutions to account. Most importantly, it is making those authorities feel that they are sitting in some kind of a glass house where all their actions are being perceived from outside. And in case they take an action which does not withstand public scrutiny. And finally, this is actually the last question. Going forward, uh, what do you think is that one thing that we as citizens as well as the executive as well as the judiciary need to ensure so that the health of the public institutions are maintained? So that the public institutions do continue to perform their functions in the future. See, I would sincerely believe that uh, <clears throat> public institutions should be seen as institutions which are their autonomy needs to be protected. The credibility of the people that are being staffed 
should be maintained right. and to a very large extent the process of choosing those people should be totally above board. Right. And if as long as that process is transparent and it is a credible process, I don't think anybody will question it. Right. Thank you so much uh, for talking to us. Uh, this is a book that is quite interesting and should be read and we look forward uh, to maybe reading more books from you uh, like that. Well, I don't know about more books, but I sincerely believe that this book must go down. I've written it in a language which is racy yes. and it should go down to the younger generation because right. younger generation must participate mm. in our democracy right. and this is a very vibrant democracy which has delivered just about 7-8% growth consistently. Yeah. That's it. Thanks for listening. Log on to the Quince website and check out our other podcasts. 